0: Hi, this is Paul, and you're listening to Archonnex Sessions, episode 116. This week, Ken and I visit the Minneapolis-based office of Snow Krylick Architects, winner of the 2018 AIA Firm of the Year Award. We sit down with partners Julie Snow and Matt Krylick to discuss the evolution of the firm, the importance of a good team, the values that contribute to their success, and their hometown of Minneapolis. So... I was thinking we could start off with the origin of Snow Krylik. I know prior to it being Snow Krylik, it was Julie Snow Architects. When did you found Julie Snow? I
1: think 1995.
0: 95. Back in the day. And then you focused on what type of work as, as a... Well, we
1: did, uh, we did a number of different things. We were at that time doing a good amount of work for a uh, plastics manufacturing Company, Mm -hmm. And so we were doing R&D facilities and manufacturing facilities, very, very pragmatic types of projects. And yet the owner of the company had a vision for how he wanted architecture to move the company. And he used architecture in a really interesting way uh, to change his culture or to build a culture.
0: And then when did Julie Snow Architects turn into Snow Krylik Architects? So year, year, do
2: I know the year? That I may not know, but I'll tell you the sort of origin story of that and maybe back up a little bit to all the way to college. Uh, Julie was my thesis advisor and I specifically chose her for that because I really wanted to work for her (laughs) and, and as well as obviously, um everything that she would bring to uh,
0: my thesis. What was it about her as, as your thesis advisor that drew you to her?
2: Well, so my project, I was really interested in the workplace and I was working on a project for Cray Research uh, in Chippewa Falls. And, you know, the factories that Julie was just describing, I was, you know, I had her book in school. I mean, I would flip through this all the time and, and look at these projects and I really admired them. And it just seemed like there was an alignment in terms of the way that these buildings responded to the site, the landscape, but also just the, the sort of quietness of them and attention to detail that I really admired. And so I I wanted her to be my thesis advisor. There was also this hidden agenda of, you know, maybe someday I'd actually be able to work for her. At the time, I had no idea that we would end up in a partnership relationship, but it was one of these things where I graduated. I ended up working for several other firms prior to joining Julie's practice. And, you know, we, we stayed in Touch uh, throughout that period. I would always send design competitions that I had won to just let her know that I hadn't fallen off the edge of the planet. And I was trying to, you know, still do really good work and make sure she didn't forget who I was. And there was a point where a project came in. It was um, the land port of entry and war road. And she was describing this project and the opportunities. And uh, it was kind of the right time, I think, for both the firm and for myself. And that's when I joined the firm. And since then, it's just sort of been an evolution in terms of going from obviously uh, just a sort of staff member to, an owner in the firm, which I think that goes back probably almost seven, eight years now when we first decided that we were going to create a partnership together and that I would slowly start to buy into the practice.
0: And uh, Julie, how did the practice evolve as as a partnership from what you had established on your own?
1: Well, I think as Matt says, uh, we were, I would say, compatible already in design. Mm-hmm. And so I think fundamentally, you know, in your thesis project, you were doing, again, a very pragmatic piece that was very connected to the landscape, and yet it had a certain ambition to it. And so the idea of buildings that have both sort of a sense of, of quietness and, and revealing uh, aspects of its, its use and its place, I would say there's also this idea of this ambition of architecture having a certain power, a certain ability to change things. And so I think Matt and I shared that, and frankly, I would say, in a sense... Matt demonstrates in a lot of ways the genesis of the firm, the idea that you are a designer, uh, you lead the firm, you understand the business sense, you understand the clients, uh, you understand managing and collaborating with a great number of people on a number of different projects. And so having that personality type, having that ability to be both a designer and a leader and pragmatic enough to make sure The books are right. Just to sort
2: of add to that, because I think there's an interesting point that Julie brought up, which was this idea of the opportunities beyond just design that I saw and that I, you know, Julie talked a lot about. And I think to this day, we both really try to create opportunities for everyone in the studio to grow. And and I was interested in, in having conversations with the clients and with our collaborators and being, you know, on the design side, but also on the technical side. And so it, that idea that I would be able to be involved in the project at all stages was really important to me. And I was just at a point, I think, in my career when I I joined the practice that all of those opportunities were here and I, I jumped on it.
0: So. You've recently been awarded AIA's prestigious Firm of the Year Award. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm curious to hear what that particular award means to you. There are a lot of awards out there.
1: You know, this award is great because it didn't come to Matt and I. It came to Snow Krylik. And so it came to everybody that's sitting upstairs right now. And uh, for me, I mean, I think this was the the one time when we heard from the president of the AIA over the phone that we'd won, and everybody was gathered into the room. And that was just the best feeling. That was, we won. You know, it wasn't Matt and I won. It was they won. And to me, that's, that's the genius of this award is, is for the first time, we're recognizing that it isn't a single voice that makes architecture. It's, it really represents the efforts of, a ton of people that are collaborating and making the music.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with all of that. I think it's an amazing recognition. It's really humbling to have your peers select you amongst an incredibly talented pool of other architecture firms that are out there. They have a lot of really good options. And so to be honored with this is it's really incredible. And I think, like Julie says, for us, what's so special about it is that it represents the the studio, the firm, and and all the people that have made this. And not just who's with us today, but, you know, everybody that came before them that started when Julie first started this practice, uh, they all share in it. And that's really important.
0: Well, it's not an easy task to put together a really strong team. What has been your secret to put together such a strong group of, of architects in, in your practice? Do you practice any specific types of recruitment strategies? Do you let your work, you know, kind of speak for itself and, and, uh, attract people organically. What, what's, what's your uh, I'll, approach? I'll start
2: with that. I think it's an evolution. You know, I don't think we have a kind of a system in which we, you know, go through A, B, C, and D, and then hey, we hit the right candidate. But you know, there's sort of all the basic things that everybody looks at: portfolio, experience, um, where they've come from. I think what's really important, and, and what happens a lot with us, is that maybe there's a studio member that has a relationship or knows somebody who knows somebody, and so there's already a kind of vetting that's occurred prior to us even meeting this person. So we have a, a good sense that they have a personality that is going to fit in the firm, and I think that personality is way more important than portfolio. I mean, everybody, you know, you you need to be talented on a sort of number of levels. You need to be able to wear multiple hats, but you need to fit in and be a team player and not, I'll I'll leave it
1: at that. Not be a jerk. (laughs) Yes. No jerks. No jerks.
3: So I kind of alluded this to this question when I first spoke with you about a week ago, which I thought was uh, particularly appropriate given Snow Cry Like. When we spoke with Todd Williams and Billy Chen, they said, uh, we asked them, you know, how does our process work? And Todd said, which wound up being the, the, the name for the pod, uh, that particular episode was, it starts with me, it ends with us. Could you talk a little bit about the genesis of your ideas or your process about how that happens in a firm like this?
1: You know, I think for us, you know, we we often do a ton of research before we even ask for a project or entertain a project. And so a lot of what we're doing early on is trying to sort of define what the opportunity is of the project to how can architecture operate in such a way to basically extend its performance into some ways that maybe the client hasn't even thought of quite yet. And so I think a lot of times we're defining that project, defining the questions that the project will ask very early in the game. So I think Matt and I do that with a group of people. And a, a lot of it is uh, writing that we're doing uh, initially just to define that project. And then, then I think it's, it's a matter of getting people on board and doing the research and, you know, kind of wandering around the project and exploring it and doing doing a good amount of understanding of the project before you know, we, we try to articulate design strategy. So I think it does in a certain sense, it's, it starts maybe with a smaller group and ends with a larger group. And that's simply the way architecture is constructed. You know, uh, you start with a small group defining stuff and then you end up, you know, layering on more and more uh, ideas and and um, uh, expertise. Yeah. And I think for
2: both of us, it's, there's, I mean, there's multiple roles we play on projects, but, you know, one is sort of generating and help helping generate ideas and and sort of what is the direction for that project what are the important questions that need to be asked on that project and that's something we do throughout but another role that i think is really important that we play on on every project is editing and really making sure that we kind of pull back and and are only doing what's necessary for the project there's there's no additional fluff that's added to the architecture that we do here and i think that's really important and that requires a lot of restraint but to kind of come back to your original question i think I think, you know, for Julie and I, it's not necessarily I mean, it it changes on every project. Sometimes we're both working kind of hand in hand on a project. There's other times where Julie may be taking the lead or I may be taking the lead. But there's always a conversation between the two of us as well as all the team members that are in the studio that are working on that project at the time. And, you know, we we have, you know, kind of coming back to the firm culture or firm of the year, I think. One of the things we have at the studio is some really incredible design leadership. And we rely on, you know, our studio members to help generate and work with us. And, and we're there, I think, to just make sure we keep the project in the right path and make sure that you know we're asking the right questions we're solving the right problems and you know we're we're pulling people back if they need to be pulled back or giving them a little push if they need to push it further
0: in the uh, in the firm bio on your website you mentioned that the the studio focuses on producing architecture that performs against multiple measures of design success so i was uh, i was curious what are those measures and how do you as as a firm, define a truly successful project?
1: You know, it's interesting because when we were just talking about the beginning of the firm and talking about context, I think our our definition of context has expanded recently to really understand much more of like the broader idea of context. So yes, you know, there's an urban context, there's geomorphic context, there's things that are going on in different biomes that, you know, There's all physical stuff. And then there's the cultural stuff that defines a certain place. And then there's uh, oftentimes, there's a, a strong social context, there's social meaning to how people are coming together in this, in certain projects. And beyond that, There's a political context. And so, for instance, when we're doing Land Ports of Entry, we're really paying attention to the fact that people are coming into our country and this is the first architecture that they experience of the United States. And we want that to be welcoming. And although there's an officer asking you for your ID (laughs) and peering in the window, it shouldn't just be, you know, entering into a police state or anything like that. It should be should be warm and welcoming. And so that's kind of the sense that I have is that we're trying to expand the context beyond what one normally thinks of as context. And so measures of success are measured against that. So for instance, economic context is a huge piece of public work. And so when CHS Field uh, landed in St. Paul, it was uh, really intended and expected to be an economic driver for that region. And I think it has been because its you're never feeling like you're enclosed in in this one experience. You feel like you're really in the city of St. Paul when you're at, at the park. So I think in a sense, its porosity really supported its economic drive. So I think those are kind of the measures. I think there's obvious measures. You know, it has to be functional. It has to be safe and secure. It has to meet budget. It has to be sustainable. You know, so there's all these, uh, these are almost checklists of performances that architecture must make. Our interest is seeing how we can extend those boundaries and those measures.
2: And to just sort of expand on that context, I think uh, I've, I've told this story before, but Julie um, handed me a book. This was actually back when I was t- working on my thesis and it was Robert Irwin's Seeing is Forgetting the Name of the Thing One Sees. And that book has been really, it, it, it one, it, won. it made an incredibly sort of profound impact on me at the time, but it's a book that I've read several times since and go back to because I feel like there's so many parallels to what he was exploring and thinking about that really are there, there there's a lot of parallels with how we think about our practice. And, you know, in particular, there's a moment where he's describing these works uh, and installing them in a gallery and how important it was that the, it wasn't just the pieces. It was the gallery space. It was the whiteness of the wall, the imperfections. It was the context in which these sat that were as important as the pieces themselves. And I think that idea that context, you know, in all the ways Julie described have such an, you know, they can have such an incredible impact on the architecture beyond just form making, beyond just creating a building in a place. It's, it's really responding to these and elevating it to a place that sort of like in the title, this sort of phenomenological idea of what are the, you know, how does architecture elevate to another level? How does it create an experience, a way of sort of seeing light, seeing material? Seeing a place in a new way that is is stronger. There's there's a project that was once described as the mutual intensification of both building and site, and I think that idea of each one making the other better. You know, if we can achieve that in every project, I think we've created a successful work of architecture.
3: So one of the things that uh, I've been fascinated, and again, I talked we talked a little bit about this before your transition from private work to more GSA. I won't say you're not fully in the GSA camp, but I know that (laughs) (laughs) I've seen more and more of your projects become more public projects. How did that evolution come about?
2: So... It's not just GSA. I think there's, there has been a significant increase of public work in our firm, um, on a local level as well as on a, on a national and a federal level. And it's, it's been an incredible learning experience for us. We have uh, been working under the GSA design excellence program, which is an incredible program within GSA that has given design. Practices like ours, the opportunity to work on project types that, you know, in a kind of typical setting, you know, or even in sort of the private sector, it would be really challenging for us to compete for these projects. So we have had incredible opportunities on, on project types from border crossings to social security headquarters, federal courthouses. And, you know, we've grown as a practice to learn how to work on these larger projects. They take a lot of project management. They take, you know, they take a really broad team to be able to deliver this type of work and to hit all the criteria that public work is required to hit, you know, being on budget, you know, the optics of what you know, how that money is spent, making sure that these are high performance buildings They're 50 to 100 year buildings. So, you know, this is the stuff that I think we get really excited about are when we can detail buildings, we can select materials that actually last. We can build buildings that 50 years from now we know will still be standing. That's a huge difference from, I think, the private sector relative to the thinking. And so there's a lot of sustainable practices that are incorporated into these projects. So we're looking at how do we reduce taxpayer dollars long term by being smart about how we use upfront costs. So there's a lot of life cycle cost analysis that goes into these project types. And the fact that, you know, Julie talked a little bit about this on the border crossings, but, you know, in addition to solving all those pragmatic and sort of programmatic aspects of the project, these are public buildings, you know, they need to represent the ideals of our federal government, whether it's a border crossing that's an entry into the United States or a, a federal building that has public servants that are working within it. You know, this is about, you know, there's there's something that just sort of elevates these projects in a way that feels really important. You're You're working on, you know, large scale public work.
1: I could go a little bit deeper into how we actually found GSA, which was actually we didn't. They found us. <laughs> I got a a call one day from Bob Thiel, who's the chief architect of Region 5, and uh, called up and said uh, that he was the chief architect of Region 5, and I had no clue what he was talking about. <laughs> and so I had to do a little research. He's like to come into the office and he came in and, and talked to us about doing some of this work. And it was really, it was great because he, you know, the government was on the lookout for people that were doing interesting work and Minneapolis, Minnesota is in the, the Chicago region. And so he was really looking out for interesting architects and interesting work. And so that's, that's how it began I would say that, you know, from doing the government pieces, we've also had some opportunities working with landscape architects. For instance, we worked with James Corner on the on Nicollet Mall and with Tom Osland on the uh, Walker Sculpture Garden. And there you're really you're kind of creating a social setting if you will, and a place for them to encounter the city, for them to encounter art. And to me, there's something really, I don't know, just very interesting about that. It's, it's like more and more, we need spaces like that where we can get together and we can agree on things <laughs> or disagree face to face. And so I really, I, I feel like that's something that our culture is depending on more and more. And so I think, for instance, You know, we did a rest stop, getting people out of their cars, even if all they're going to do is go pee, you know, it's good. (laughs) It's a good thing. So for me, that's uh, public space has this opportunity to create interaction. And to me, that's probably one of the most interesting things that we can do as architects.
3: You know, in thinking about the difference between public work and private work, so much for me, it, it, the public work is the end user is not very, not always very clear. You don't get to meet with them, not at the table. How do you think about that work now? And when you're thinking about border crossing, when you did that project, how many years ago?
2: Well, there's a few of them, but probably yeah. 10 years ago.
3: And you think about border crossings now and very different contextual kind of issues at play. I mean how how do you balance all of those things? How do you balance a client that you don't get to see, you don't get to talk to, you don't get input from? How do you manage all of that?
2: Well, I, I just in terms of the border crossings, I think, you know, when we first started doing that work, you know, it was post 9/11, so the world had changed and border crossings had changed the, you know, idea of what our border needed to be had changed and It was our responsibility as architects to deliver a secure land port of entry that was safe for, you know, officers, was safe for the public that moved through it, but also represented the ideals of the United States. I mean, we are an open democracy, right? It was about transparency and, and creating a gateway to our nation, but also the communities that these sit in. So while it's a entry to the United States, it, you know, in the case of War Road, Minnesota, it was also an entry into that part, you know, into War Road, into that uh, part of northern Minnesota. And so having the building, um, you know, through material, through the sort of final design of the site and building um, respond to that context was really important. The, you know, we we worked with the tenant agency that occupied it, but you know, in terms of the public that would be moving through it, I think through conversations, we understood the anxieties that people have as they come through ports, even if you're completely legal and you have nothing to hide, you're a little intimidated and that's kind of what happens as you move through these. So, in a way we were trying to have the architecture counter that, creating this very warm, welcoming entry, you know, surrounded in wood as You know, officers and guns are questioning you about what you're bringing in or or not bringing into the country. So I think it's the role of architecture to try to balance those issues and understand, you know, what potentially is going through the minds because these buildings are not necessarily buildings in which the public are always getting out. And if you are getting out of your car, you probably don't want to be. It's not necessarily a good thing. So, you know, really addressing and thinking through what is that experience as a user and trying to allow that to inform the architecture is important.
1: You know, I want to say that that is not an unusual thing for all architecture. If you really think about it, because architecture does live in a public realm. Um, you know, and okay. So maybe some of our sites that are 57 acres and a mile of coastline, those are not public. <laughs> but when we're doing, uh, you know, a house on Lindell Avenue, it's a, it lives in the public. And so you have a responsibility to people that aren't at the table when you're designing and, for me, it, it is almost a requirement for architects to have those people in mind. And in fact, there are people that you're designing for that aren't born yet, you know, so that's, that's an important thing to be thinking about, you know, you're doing a school project, for instance, uh, we're working now with a Montessori school and, you know, some of the people that will be in that building aren't on the planet yet. So, you know, it's our responsibility to put ourselves in their shoes and experience the building from their point of view. So,
3: well, I would be remiss if I didn't bring up that. As a w- white woman in architecture and a white man in architecture, you know, our our chapter, our Minnesota chapter, has um, our first African-American president, the chapter, Nathan. And we have a, a robust agenda, I think, for the upcoming year about diversity in the profession. And I think it's, uh, I think I talked a little bit again about it When we spoke, it seemed to really build off of the previous national conference in in Orlando. It seemed to be that we're leaning forward in a way that I don't think a lot of chapters are doing. You know, what do you what do you see your role, our role as these privileged architects to lift the voices and reach out to communities that don't see architects because we don't see them? And, you know, so they're not I was talking to someone about this before. And I think Michelle Obama actually pretty much said it in the conference. Black child sees a police officer, black child will see a doctor, and they may see different facets of a professional body of people, but they often, if ever, will see an architect because they're either they're just not ever going to see them. And I'm, you know, I'm thinking about that as I, you know, move forward in this community. And I'm, how do you think about those issues?
2: I think it's a really it's a great question. It's a it's a very relevant question. It's one that. Um You know, I I don't know if any of us has the right answer to this yet. I think the idea that there is uh, an awareness that there's a conversation around it, especially here locally, I think, um, you know, we're really excited about what's happening at AIA Minnesota and, you know, at the University of Minnesota as well um, around diversity. For, you know, I'll I'll speak kind of specifically to my experience. I know this is a, a very white male profession. You know, when you go to the convention, there's a lot of gray hair, you know, sitting at, at, uh, at these sessions. And for me, it's sort of a wake-up call actually when I go to convention because I've spent the majority of my career working for or with women and, you know, with Julie, obviously, but also prior to that with Joan Serrano. And so I, I've had this sort of different experience, I think, than a lot of. I, I have an incredibly warped perspective of our profession. <laughs> <laughs> where there are, you know, women leadership and, and uh, and it's, but that that said, I think um, it's something that we all have to work on. And, you know, our, our practice is very diverse uh, when it comes to minorities and women. Uh, you know, could it be more diverse? Absolutely. I think the benefit of diversity is you have a broader, you know, in, in, in any sense of the word, it, To be more creative, to have better ideas, We we need more diverse ideas. We need different approaches to solve problems. We're working in diverse communities. You know, we can't just come to those communities with a single white male voice or a single female white voice. We need to have... And think in a much broader context. And I think from what is happening at AI Minnesota and this initiative to start to help firms understand what it even means to talk about diversity is really important because it's, it's eye-opening. And, you know, I think even for a practice like ours that has a, a pretty good balance of diversity within it, we could all learn from that. And I think this community, I hope this community can really become leaders in this effort and start to set a precedent for other chapters for the entire country and and profession to start to figure out how to address this question.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting because I I, I really am maybe concerned about the trajectory of architects into the profession. And it does seem to me that particularly with women coming into the profession, that we're seeing that their numbers drop off as they're finding the profession not necessarily welcoming them and not necessarily being what they expected it to be. So I really feel like it isn't just uh, a matter of attracting new people to the profession. It's a matter of really looking at the profession and figuring out how we can bring more people, how we can operate how we can work in a way that is more respectful of other points of view. So it's it's very hard for me to say that, that the profession is where it needs to be. I think it's not where it needs to be. The questions that we ask are not very challenging to the way that we work and so I think we need to start asking harder and harder questions, and we need to let people that are not in the profession start asking us those harder and harder questions. I remember being asked, like, when When do you expect to see parity? That is, you know, women in the profession, 50-50 with men, and my sense is that that's I'll see that when our clients are 50-50. And I think we're getting there. And I think that's going to be much more true of diversity within the profession, too. So we're going to see more racial equality within the profession when we see racial equality happening in the rest of the world among our clients. Now, that's not an excuse to wait.
3: (laughs) So today I was just reading, and I love Twitter. I love Twitter.
1: So. Asla put out a, uh,
3: their their advocacy arm, Asla, uh, put out a a piece today where they are advocating publicly on behalf of a a particular bill in Congress right now and have aligned themselves with, um, and it's funny, he's my former congressman in New Jersey, Frank Pallone. He's a Democrat on uh, coastline issues. And they felt strongly enough where they put themselves out there and really aligned themselves with with a party. I mean... Our professional organization wants to equivocate on really serious issues because they don't want to offend a certain part of our membership. They don't ever want to see the take of the ask themselves the hard question and put themselves out there for a cause because it just might offend someone's political agenda. And, and, you know, I mean, from the bullshit that we have to deal with, carping and complaining from members about having Michelle Obama come to speak or Bill Clinton to speak, you know, it's... how do you feel about the the kind of like the mealy mouth approach sometimes that I feel as a, as a, I'm a dues paying member and I'm, I'm very vocal. <laughs> Are what, you? I'm very vocal. <laughs> Is that why you're to, doing
1: a podcast?
3: <laughs> well, I'm, I'm very critical. I'm very critical of a lot of the, the leadership at, uh, at, at, at I think we have great, I, I love Mary Margaret. I love everybody here. and And I'm not just saying that because I live here and I'm saying it because I've, I've, been a part of committees before in the past. So I
2: do think that what happens if there's a void is it gets filled. And I think that's exactly what Architects Advocate has been doing is taking a slightly stronger stance because they can and because they're it's a new group of architects coming together saying, this is what we believe in and this is what's important. And, you know, if you know, somebody's going to say that climate isn't important or that energy performance isn't important. We're going to stand up and say it is. And we recognize this. I mean, we are we are designing buildings in cities throughout the world, and they have a huge impact on the energy usage we need to. Whether our clients are leading this effort or not, this is our role, right? This is our responsibility. We need to be advocates for this. And so it's just I think these these voids get filled and they influence ultimately eventually i think the aia may be influenced by that group right it may be absorbed who who knows sort of where that that will ultimately go but i think it's true it's hard it's hard for large organizations to move quickly i mean this one thing we've learned working with the federal government is it's, you know, it,
3: there's a lot of voices
2: that have to be addressed and you have to listen to all of them and you have to address and filter out sort of what's important and not.
3: Architecture lobby is doing the same kind of thing. I don't know if you're familiar with them at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was just following, they did a um, Peggy Deemer and um, their group were out at Yale doing a symposium over the weekend. I was following their Twitter feed and, and, uh, yeah, so you're right. I mean, you're right. If they're not gonna if the professional organization is not gonna take up the cause and there's gonna be, you know, people who are gonna fill it. We're gonna it. go figure that out. You figure it out and then we're gonna come to you with a solution. So your thoughts about city of Minneapolis, how we're growing, where do you see our direction headed? I mean, I was on the Minneapolis Arts Commission for a while and I couldn't figure out why Minneapolis hasn't adopted some form of what New York City has, Department of Design and Construction. They build amazing buildings. And, and I'm like, why do we have that? Why don't we have a version
1: of that? I think we have amazing talent in the architectural profession here. And so I think that's maybe the, the great benefit of this community. One of the issues I have with the way architects are selected is often it's basically a test of your list of buildings types and whether you've done that building type 15 times. You've done it five times the guy that's done it 15 times is better than the guy that only did it five times. That's not necessarily true. And so I find that that idea of committees is usually going to rely on metrics that are pretty irrelevant to talent and and expertise. So that I think is, you know, changing the entire, you know, looking at that in a broader way is, is, more important than necessarily getting the design excellence group like New York City, although it's a great project. I mean, the work that I've seen, I was actually on the New York jury probably four or five years after that was done, and I saw like 10 fire stations, 10 police stations, 10 libraries that were amazing, and yeah. it was just like, Wow this is so great. And it was giving people that hadn't had a voice in creating architecture in New York City, a real voice.
2: One thing I just wanted to add to that is the optics of what a building looks like. If a building looks, you know, quote unquote, too expensive, you're going to catch grief for it. And it's it's sad that, you know, we live in a time where the idea of investing in civic buildings and public infrastructure isn't something that we should be proud of, that we should hold to our kind of highest ideals. Instead, if it looks like, and generally it isn't necessarily more expensive if it's a really well-designed building, it's actually probably in the long run, it should be, you know, it should save taxpayer dollars because it's reducing energy costs. It is, you know, addressing a lot of these uh, energy performance issues that we deal with in buildings, but there is the perception and optics that you have to deal with. And when the idea of spending taxpayer dollars on anything is ridiculed, it's, it's hard to change in an environment like that. And you know, we're up against that all the time and it's it's really challenging. And I think, you know, we also have to be advocates locally to, you know, talk with city council members, talk with our mayor, get AIA involved and, and talk about is there other ways to procure work that makes more sense and that really allows for a, a broader, more diverse group of people to be practicing within the city.
3: So we had a past where there was a lot of architecture that was, you know, for the public good. And you talk about the challenges of, you know, creating buildings when, you know, the appearance, the perception is things cost too much. Is that scaring away? I mean, do do you still keep tilting at that windmill? Don't give up and you just keep charging at it because I can see many of your projects, you know, 25 year award winning projects. And not that you think about that, but, you know, I wonder, is there, you know, is it possibly that the work that was done back then, it's a lot of POMO stuff that's what I was seeing. I was like, oh, so there's this kind of aversion to that right now. No one's really in a very jocular mood around <laughs> this research in, in postmodernism.
1: <laughs> you know, 25 years ago, yeah, there was some pretty crappy stuff done, but there was still some interesting work. Yeah. I mean, I can't, I just have a really hard time believing that you couldn't find something worth looking at 25 years ago. I mean, that just, it just isn't true that that wasn't. I was here 25 years ago and there were good buildings, mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about the POMO ones either. <laughs> there were really good and interesting buildings done. So it just is maybe not looking hard enough. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, speaking of looking back, the Architecture Firm Award particularly recognizes excellence in, in work done by firms within the past decade and more, I guess. How would you characterize the work that you did during that the last decade, and and how do you see your work evolving um, going forward?
2: You know, I I think if you look at the portfolio of work we have, it's it's incredibly diverse, uh, from ballparks to rest stops to border stations, housing. Um, we really. Um, We don't discriminate when it comes to project types. We actually like um, trying new project types for the first time. But there's definitely a a sort of thread that I think you can see throughout our work, which are a lot of very pragmatic buildings types. Building types that are often overlooked, that aren't necessarily seen as a great design opportunity, you know, rest areas, uh, parking garage. We try to elevate these building types and project types in ways that take them from being very utilitarian and making something, you know, just elevating them a little bit more, sort of figuring out and asking the questions about what are the opportunities here? And, you know, I'll just use the rest area as an example, because it's one of the, the newest ones. This was an incredible site. And, you know, we were fortunate to have this sort of ravine and wooded ravine behind the building where it was sited. And this idea that you have travelers that are kind of weary and restless and, you know, maybe they're just coming in to use the restroom. But this idea that you could connect them in this really profound way to the site that is unexpected is really what that building's about. It's about pulling you through and bringing you out to this back uh, deck that overlooks this incredible site. And, you know, even if somebody stops for a moment to sort of appreciate that, particular place in a new way. I think that's really important. So it, you know, it's this idea that we take very um, sort of everyday building uh, typologies and elevate them to higher levels is, I think that's really the common thread that you see in a lot of the work. And it goes back to uh, the factories that Julie founded the practice on. You know, these were really pragmatic building types that she was able to elevate and and not just, you know, make a, a beautiful building, but actually, challenge what that building type is and have an influence on the companies and the people that are working within them through the architecture, I think that's that's really profound.
1: I think there's, there's a couple ways to answer that question about, you know, where are we going? And I think one of the things, uh, you could answer that in terms of a process way, and you could answer that in terms of more of a product and and performance way. So the process way, I I think we're seeing more and more of our work done in collaboration with manufacturers and with uh, constructors. So we're You know, there's been a tendency to obviously drop the design bid award strategy and to do more of negotiated. And that's now turning into design assist and it's turning into seeking out talented subcontractors that we want to bring in and work with. So I think that process is uh, kind of expanding the territory of the architect and kind of also embracing our construction industry colleagues. So that I think is great. And, and the more that we can do that, I think the tighter uh, we can get and the less time we can spend arguing about, you know, whether this is a buildable detail or not. So to me, that would be great. The way that I see architecture more broadly and the way our architecture will evolve as, as we do, you know, and again, I'm going to kind of walk away uh, from the question about public work, but maybe come back to that. I'd like to see architecture engage people in a more direct way. I think uh, we've had architecture that has become star architecture and you've had people come in and they tell you that in their RFP that they want a significant building and uh, they want... And, and that always kind of troubles me a little bit because it's almost as if they want a piece of you... To represent them. And what I'm more interested in doing is using our voice as architects to amplify or elucidate their vision of the world. And so it it kind of puts us kind of behind them and pushing them a little bit. But I think, in a sense, uh, this idea of engaging our clients and engaging the people that aren't at the table. Uh, with the work that 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 should be a certain performance of architecture that it has not been explored as much as it should be.
3: That was one of the things I liked about when you talked about the the two projects in Wisconsin. When you talked about the client and how they he was deliberately holding back on like lit- releasing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he,
1: he was. He used. Uh, he he didn't want to like make people do things, but he knew uh, that architecture could make people do things. And so he would uh, set out to have, have me, you know, he'd say, okay, look, we want uh, a center for the exchange of manufacturing information. And I go, check. (laughs) And he'd say, go talk to this guy, this guy, this guy. And I go out and talk to this guy. They say, I don't know what you're talking about. What, what is this? And so we would kind of wrestle through something. And he would basically say, when can you start construction? When can you get groundbreaking because as soon as groundbreaking took hold people would go oh my god he's serious about this we got to figure out what to do with this building and so that's when things would start getting real so it was almost like architecture was a catalyst for corporate change it was super fun
3: um just have two questions left not the two questions i gave last time Mm -hmm. one of the questions i always when we talked to todd and and billy the question i really liked asking them because they hadn't pondered it and you're not in that place yet. I think they're. They seem to be, perhaps thinking about it now that I asked them. Maybe. Um, <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> thinking about your legacy. Do you, do you ever consider that? Do you think about legacy? You archiving your work. How do you do you even consider that at all? You
2: know, we're lucky to keep a model past <laughs> <laughs> project. We, you know, we we honestly we are we're terrible about cataloging and keeping the sort of what gets us to that final architecture. But I think, you know, for us, it's, it's the work that will stand and that will be remembered and that I think people will sort of ultimately judge the value that we did or didn't bring to the table. And, uh, you know, so, yeah, we're not, we're not good about keeping trace and sketches and models. But no, I, I don't think about that at all, to be honest.
1: <laughs> There's no way to think about it you know there's just I, there just isn't i my sense is if there's anything it's just having people still asking questions you know still you know pushing that particular envelope and you know do we have to practice like this do we have to do it this way you know that to me are some of the biggest questions that that architects aren't facing these days and that's the only way i think that we get to that diversity question is that we can't assume that if we keep doing things the way we have that people coming into the profession will adopt them and and adore them the way we do <laughs> so yeah no i can't think about that okay i can think about yeah. my dog how is your dog <laughs> what's your dog's name? Go. cooper
3: cooper what
1: kind of dog is it he's a great dane he's a harlequin great dane 10 months old and trouble does he come to the office <laughs> Yes, he does come Is he, to the office
0: the the one office dog uh, no, no, actually
1: problem. we've had other office dogs. Max's been here.
2: yeah, I've, uh, my dog's been in but uh, he's he's kind of the official office dog, I would say.
1: yeah He gets he gets his picture taken and with the group. We have the when we took the sort of a group photo last it was last spring and he was this little tiny guy. He was like maybe 40 pounds and was sitting next to Ty now. If he were sitting next to Ty, his head would be level with Ty's. I think
2: just, if, if you just look at our Instagram feed, he probably gets the most hearts. Yeah, that, that's him. Yeah. He's about three times that size
1: now. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. Oh, no. It's,
3: it's on the website. It's
1: on the... <laughs> He's a member of the the photo. The
3: photo. So the, the, I guess the last question is, uh, what are you both reading and what are you listening to?
1: I don't know what I'm listening to. I'm listening to you. I uh, I, I like listening to David Axelrod's podcast, as well as yours. Um, I'm reading Four Walls and a Roof and getting more and more depressed, but laughing all the way, which is great. It's the best kind of depressed. I,
3: yeah, <laughs>
2: exactly. So the the last book I read, which is sort of revolving around my new sort of second passion outside of architecture is, I'm probably going to butcher this name, but Haruki Haruki uh, Murakami. So he's a fictional author, but he wrote a non-fictional book about running. And it's called, I have all these long titled books that I read. It's really hard to remember them. But I think what I talk about when I talk about running and what's really interesting about it is he talks about how important running is to writing and how he can't do one without the other but he he also describes the space that he gets into sort of mentally when he does he's a long distance runner and he's runs almost every day uh way more than i could ever imagine running but as you read through this you realize like there is something for me about running that it's both physical and mental and you're able to just get into this space it's almost a sort of void and you're thinking but not really, you're sort of just experiencing yourself, you know, your heartbeat, your breathing. And it has been incredible for me. Um, So that that's the the latest book that I read. Um, And listening to I'm going to go to the music world, but it's uh, The National. I mean, I'm just pretty much obsessed with them. And they they put out like album after album, just and and I, I like to listen to whole albums right to like actually not just hear a, a really great song by some band but to be able to hear you know that entire album and and love it and it's like they just they i don't know how they do it but they seem to be able to just produce amazing album after amazing album
3: and uh last one any brushes with uh super bowl 53 greatness this week or is it 53 <laughs> or 52 any, any brushes with so, I, well, I'll, I'll describe
2: what Julie was just telling me, her brush with the Super Bowl. We just came back from uh, D.C. <laughs> last night, and we're walking through the airport. And, of course, there's all sorts of Super Bowl memorabilia. But somebody threw a football at her. <laughs>
1: which, weirdly, I caught, which was phenomenal. But Cooper's since eaten it. So it's gone. But yeah. Good no,
2: Cuba. no, but we, we haven't
0: seen Justin Timberlake yet. So he's working on securing his wardrobe. <laughs> yeah. No malfunctions this time. Well, it was, it was a real pleasure talking with you guys. Thank you for, for having us in your studio.
2: Absolutely. Thanks.
1: It's our pleasure to have you.
0: Thanks so much to Matt and Julie for opening up their office to talk with us this week. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions about this podcast, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, Arc Sessions, or with hashtag Archonnect Sessions. You can also send us an email to connect at archonnect.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.